Welcome to Voyage of Discovery. I'm your host, Mary Osborne, the museum specialist at the Stewart House, the birthplace of Kappa Kappa Gamma. Today, I have a special guest with me, Kylie Towers Smith, the archivist and museum director for Kappa Kappa Gamma. Kylie joins me to discuss the history of convention. Kylie, thanks for being my first guest speaker. Hi, Mary. Dr. Oz, if I may. Thanks for letting me join you. Um, so I thought today we would just um, talk about kind of um, convention, um, past and present, and some of the traditions associated with convention. Um, but first, um, let's, let's talk about the purpose of convention. I've only been to one convention and um, I wasn't even a Kappa at that point. So I have lots of questions about how convention is conducted. Sounds good. So what's your first question? I have been attending since 1998, so I consider myself an expert. Um, what's, what's the purpose of convention? Essentially, the purpose is to conduct the business of the fraternity. Um, that's a pretty wide-ranging purpose, I think. That's pretty generic, but essentially every convention now, we elect officers, we approve changes to the bylaws, those governing documents of the fraternity, um, but then there are also opportunities for people to um, receive instruction and education based upon their role. So whether they're a leader, uh, whether they hold a leadership position in the organization, or whether they want to prepare to hold one in the future. Um, I think in the earliest years, there was also an idea of coming together for social reasons. So they had presentations of history, entertainment. Um, they wanted to make and renew friendships. Um, and I loved that Tade Coons, our first grand president who was elected in 1881, described convention as kingdom come, an occasion, a rejuvenation. Um, Tade also said that, quote, we felt the need of a convention to make somebody responsible for something. And then Mae Westerman said, there one sees the fraternity whole, names become people. So I think those are great ways to sum up the purpose of convention. Yeah, I like I, I really like that quote by Westerman. It's um, I noticed um, in our, our notes when we were putting this episode together, um, you had said one of the goals of convention is to create unity um, among the chapters and really establish the fraternity is in the early days established the fraternity as an organization, not just these disparate um, groups of women. And I think Westerman's quote really speaks to that, creating bonds um, among the chapters and that, so that they see themselves as part of um, a larger organization in the early days. It was really important for um, the fraternity to establish a foundation of of what they hoped it would be in the future. Mm -hmm. yep. So today, um, we know that, that convention is held every two years. What, has it ever been canceled? Yeah. Uh, so when you look at the listing of conventions and how we number them, it's a little inconsistent because the very first one, 1871, like one year after our founding, it's actually a myth. Um, the only founder who ever described it and had memory of it was Minnie Stewart. And I always loved that notion of, of conflict because we always idealize these founders and think that they agreed on everything and thought that, um, you know, everything happened in, in the same way in each of their minds. Uh, every other founder was like, 1871, who would even be there? We were so brand new. Um, that no, we would probably not have, have gotten it together to have a convention in 1871. So we think, and what we have record of, is the very first convention was in 1876. And since then, for the most part, with a few ex exceptions, it was in um, every, it was held every two years. Now we know in 1880, it was postponed. The 1880 convention had been, quote, postponed without the benefit of notification to the delegates. <laughs> that, that was a polite way of saying the chapter that had agreed to hostess it changed the date and forgot to tell everyone. So when a few people showed up, they were like, hey, we're here for convention, and nobody was there to meet them. <laughs> so uh, postponed without the benefit of notification in 1880. Um, and then we had two that were canceled very significantly, one in 1918 because of World War I, and then again in 1944 because of World War II. 
And now, of course, we know 2020 has been um, canceled. It's still up for debate whether it's canceled or postponed. We're not sure if we're actually going to count it based on the business that will be conducted virtually. Um, so because of the, the worldwide pandemic that is going on right now. So, so just thinking about where um, convention has convened over the years, how have the venues changed um, since the beginning, since 1876? Yes, yeah, significantly. So that first one was held in the home of Ida Anderson Donan um, in Indiana, Greencastle. And, you know, we don't even know the total number of attendees at that convention. We know it was pretty small. Um, but then obviously primarily held on college campuses, which makes a little bit of sense as well. Um, Tade Coons also talked about convention as being a homecoming, coming back to campus. So I'm sure it gave these women in higher education an opportunity to go back to the, the places that they felt strongly about, um, especially when conventions were more of a local, a local thing. Um, I loved, Mary, you'll appreciate this, being from Indiana, that in 1892, they held convention in the Hall of the House of Representatives at the Indiana State House. And then really the big uh, resort style convention was when they um, held it at Estes Park in 1914. So people would, would really look forward to these destination locations. So Yellowstone, Ottawa, you always hear about the Scenery Club and the Hotel Del Coronado, all of these really wonderful resorts and hotels that now we wouldn't really even fit in with a participating group of about a thousand or more. Um, we now have to go to uh, some of the conference hotels, like city, city hotels and resorts. So um, just the size of the group makes it a little bit more challenging to find a location, especially too, because we always want to house our people at the same hotel. Um, so far, we have not ever had it at a convention center with surrounding hotels. So that would change, that would change the dynamic of where we could have it but can't have it in houses anymore. <laughs> right, but that's a good thing. Um, yes, I, as I was doing my research, um, I, I did remember how, yes, so many things did take place in Indiana. Indiana had such a big role. We haven't, we haven't been back to Indiana for a while. It might be time. I've been to a, a PEO international convention in Indianapolis, so might might be time. And just thinking about... Um, that period when convention was held at these resorts like Estes Park or um, Mackinac, um, I think that really reflects sort of larger trends in um, travel becoming more popular and, but also at the same time, attending um, an event at one of these um, resorts speaks to the exclusivity of travel and that you know that only a certain set of members are really going to be able to undertake this kind of a journey and and, mm -hmm. um, and how, how travel was also seen as um, leisure. I mean, I don't think we would look at it today and, and, and think of travel as being so leisurely. It's so stressful. It's the opposite. Yeah. Kind of the golden age of conventions seems like it was also the golden age of travel. Um, just getting there was half the fun. Um, and then they were always organizing trips before or after so that you could see the area in which you were visiting. Um, but cost has always been a big deal as well. Who's going to pay for it? How much is the fraternity going to pay for? Are the chapters footing their own bill? Um, once we have organized alumni, are they, are they footing their own bill? Is the fraternity paying for some of them to go? Um, so it, like you said, it really lended, lended itself to be exclusive um, for better or for worse. Right. So thinking about just getting there and how long that would take, especially in the, the golden age of, of travel, one of the most efficient ways would be train travel, which I've been on a train before um, as I was doing research for uh, my dissertation. And train travel is, I have to say, it is a lot of fun because you, you get to see smaller towns and it just, it does seem more relaxing. So let's talk a little bit about how, how traveling to convention has changed. And I know how much you love talking about train travel and that there were specific trains set aside or, you know, arranged for, for travel to convention. Yeah, traveling to convention obviously initially was organized personally. I would love to hear a story of 1876 
a couple convention delegates getting in a stagecoach <laughs> traveling to convention um, or even getting into a wagon to get to the train to then take them further. But we, we don't have any of those accounts. I, I would love to have it, but we can't, we can't find it and uh, we can't certainly make it up. Convention trains though, when they could arrange travel with the actual train agents, the companies would arrange for Kappa specials. So they were particular cars that would take off from meeting points. So if you got on a train in Buffalo, New York, you then might meet the, the Kappa train in Chicago. Um, so there were cars that were just Kappas and they had hostesses arranged for those cars. They had bridge tournaments, sing-alongs, um, all kinds of gatherings. One of my favorite train stories uh, that I was told was when the train was going through Minneapolis around that area, Minneapolis, St. Paul, but it was in more of a rural part on the tracks and the train stopped in the middle of the night around midnight. And the, it was either the conductor or one of the stewards came to talk to the campus and said, there's a woman who has stopped the train and said she needs to get on it. Um, and she was standing by herself in the, in the middle of almost nowhere with a suitcase ready to get onto the train. And she told them that she needed to get on the train and go to convention. And so this sweet little woman turned out to be Cleora Wheeler, who is one of our um, most well-known, talented early leaders of the fraternity, who stopped the train, likely in her 70s, <laughs> and told him she needed to get on and head down the tracks on the way to convention. So we've talked about how we, we get to convention. Um, let's talk a little bit about what happens once convention convenes. One thing that I find really interesting is all the traditions associated with convention and where they originated and maybe some misconceptions we have about how they originated. As a first-time attendee, one thing I found really perplexing, and, and again, I wasn't a capo when I was attending, but just the number of changes of clothing that I had to bring. <laughs> so why why do we need to change our, our clothes so often for the for these different events that happen within convention and what are some other traditions that you find interesting well being a modern staff member of fraternity headquarters i love having that role at convention because it does allow me to limit the number of times i have to change i often would get to wear um, a uniform t-shirt or <laughs> something that didn't require me to go from one outfit to a really formal outfit in the evening. And I think a lot of the clothing that people do take to convention, their recommendations. So I think we would want to emphasize the fact that nobody has to wear anything specific except for um, during the opening and closing business meetings, the memorial service, and I think that's it. You have to wear um, white. Those are the the three times when um, you are, are asked to wear white in order to enter into the ceremony. And that is one of probably the most contested suggestion or requirement at convention. Some people hate it, some people love it. Makes for an interesting picture, um, but it also makes for some stressful shopping before you go to this event. And I think in the earliest years, almost all the attendees wore academic robes during the meetings. So I like that idea because it would take away some of the pressure of trying to impress everyone with your different outfits. <laughs> so if you got to wear a robe over it, you might get to do that, but that's expensive. So now only the leadership wear the academic robes, which is just a, a reminder that our organization is based in um, scholarship and academics. You usually will find the most formal, it'll get formal, more formal as the, as the convention goes along with the final banquet being the most formal. People often will pull out cocktail attire, or they used to. It actually kind of seems like some of the attire that you'll see at these banquets is not as formal anymore. Just, again, travel's a hassle. Packing your suitcase is a pain. And so if you can't bring out your sequined floor-length gown, then a dress that you might wear to a wedding or to church would <laughs> would also be advisable. Well, and our I think our whole society has just become more casual. There's probably fewer and fewer people that can just pull out like a floor-length gown from their closet. Yeah, and it's expensive. Most, yeah, for most of us, probably that, you know, Easter dress or attire that we might wear to a wedding, that, that might be the 
most formal <laughs> um, mm -hmm. outfit that we own. Um, it wasn't until I started attending conventions that I learned what resort casual wear was. Um, things that look nice if you're at a resort in a warm weather area. Like this, you can't see because we're on a podcast, not a video, but I'm wearing what I would consider to be resort casual. Um, because if I were down in Florida, it would fit in just fine. But if I wear it in the middle of winter in Ohio, it seems a little bright and <laughs> loud uh, for, for the winter. One thing I noticed looking at the um, the records from the 1920s convention is the introduction of uh, sportswear and yeah. all that jersey knit. I, I just thought about Coco Chanel and just the influence of some of the French designers and just probably how everyone rejoiced like, oh, I can, you know, I can wear my, um, you know, what I would wear to play tennis or golf and it's going to be so comfortable. And Finally, you don't have to wear a wool sweater and skirt for your tennis game. What, what kind of entertainment has been featured at convention? Um, and who are some of the very important people or special guests uh, that have been a part of convention? It's interesting to look at photographs for convention. Uh, they were certainly longer um, in years prior. Sometimes they were over holidays. Some of the conventions I have looked at, they took place over um, 4th of July weekend, which now I think people would be horrified if someone wanted to, to suggest that because they would have plans with family and friends otherwise. But at that time, it seemed fine. You know, similar to universities that were still um, in session during the winter holidays. Um, some Kappa chapters were holding events over New Year's, <laughs> over like Thanksgiving holiday. So it just, back then it seemed more likely. So I think that's when you would see more entertainment, more opportunity for leisure, more opportunities to play sports. There's a whole lot of photographs of people playing tennis, playing golf, horseback riding, ice skating at these previous conventions. So there was a lot of an opportunity for entertainment just as a participant, as an attendee, if you weren't in all of these business sessions. Looking through some of the agendas and the programs that they had at conventions, um, we were talking about the 1890 post-convention hash party that have that has a modern connotation that probably is not the case. I think a hash party is is more of a social gathering that might have been slang for just getting together. But then you also noted that in 1914 at the Estes Park Convention, vaudeville was huge. Uh, automobiles, they were taking these these rides in the automobiles through the park, masked balls, all kinds of, of special banquets and balls have always been popular. One of my favorite conventions, I think is the 1916 convention at Cornell. And um, that's where they had the powdered banquet, where they all had powdered hair, powdered faces, and white dresses. So they were they were really into these these fancy banquets, and that was almost entertainment in and of itself. Music has always been a big part of convention. So whether it was the group singing together with song booklets, song sheets, or sharing songs that were popular at one local chapter and teaching it to the rest of the rest of the organization, or having a convention choir that would perform for them. There was one convention that was in Massachusetts, and so they went to the Boston Pops and had a, a special concert with them. Lots of, of neat different types of entertainment. Skits and displays, of course, were huge. The historical pageant we talked about on one of our earlier Historically Speaking episodes, they would use the clothing that had been collected by the fraternity from fraternity VIPs, so past presidents, executive secretaries, and so on. And they would represent the time period of each chapter when they were founded using clothing from that period. So these historical pageants were, were really popular and a lot of people looked forward to them at the different, at the different conventions. In 1970, uh, Robert Young was the MC for the Centennial Convention. You noted that he is known for his roles in Marcus Welby, MD, and Father Knows Best. And then I think when we talk about VIPs who have attended, early on a lot of it started because of the Alumni Achievement Award. Um, the people who were attending were often famous themselves, but sometimes their guests were also famous. So Joanne Flug, when she won, um, she's an actress. 
when her, I can't remember if it was her fiance or her husband at the time, Chuck Woolery, um, he attended with her. So he was one of the, the famous guests at convention. We've talked about Lucille Ball, who attended in 1960 because Madeline Pugh Davis had won the Alumni Achievement Award for writing for the I Love Lucy show, creating it, and several other um, famous television program. So Lucille Ball attended with Madeline in 1960. Kate Spade, the um, fashion icon, she attended in 2004 in Kansas City when the convention was in her hometown. Uh, Doris Buffett, the sister of Warren Buffett, um, attended our convention when she was um, promoting her the Sunshine Lady Fund uh, that provides uh, money and escrow for education. So all kinds of, of neat things. And probably more current day, we've had guest speakers uh, who are often either musical or humorous. So we've had drum lines and bands and motivational speakers and humorous speakers to just kind of give another highlight um, to, the, to the convention attendees. I, I think now your, your uh, comment about motivational speakers reminded me how I think now a lot of the draw is uh, who can we get for educational sessions? Mm -hmm. And those tend to be well-known motivational speakers or authors, um, who, you know, in their fields. Mm -hmm. I think we can agree that whenever campus get together, we know, we know we're going to have a good time. But there's also a, a serious side to convention. There is the business of the fraternity that, that must be conducted. So let's talk a little bit about some of the landmark votes of convention. So I'll kind of go through them quickly and hope that our listeners will do some digging and go back and read some of our history books to get some of the background on that. Yes, this, this is the time to check out the digital archives. We're just going to put a plug in for that. There we go. That sounds good. <laughs> well, one thing that I, I think is interesting was how, I think it was the 1977 history, talked about why it's important that so many of these things have come from convention. Um, so they wrote that it's important to note that most of the primary ideals and symbols and their accompanying ceremony had been adopted by convention vote following committee recommendation. So some of the very earliest things came from the founders. But beyond that, we have this, this method of establishing CAPA policy, which, as you mentioned earlier, really made for universal chapter understanding. It helped these individual groups of people on far-flung campuses to understand that they were part of a larger organization. It gave them a fraternity-wide identity and really helped establish the organization as just that, an organization and not just a bunch of loosely related groups on campus. So I think that's, that's important to note because now the things that we're going to mention are huge. So in 1876, at that, that first convention that we actually number, the fraternity is only six years old and they have started to combine the ceremonies that they're finding at some of the other local chapters. So in 1876, Delta's ritual ceremonies were adopted. It changed a little bit through the years, but that's, that's the very first instance that we said, okay, if you're going to become a member, you're going to hear this and every other member is going to hear the same thing. And so we always talk about how it's our policies that really reflect who we are publicly, and then it's our ritual that we all can internalize. So then in 1881, the Constitution was rewritten, and that was a big, big year. Three grades of membership were established, so active, honorary, and silent, which, side note, silent members had not completed a college course and no longer paid the fees or performed the duties of the fraternity. But they did follow it up by saying alumni and silent members may become active by paying the fees and performing the duties of the fraternity. But this is, is really important to note because we haven't yet established the full activity of alumni. The fraternity is only 11 years old, so not there just aren't a lot of alumni out there. And so a good example of that is Alice Pillsbury, an early member, one of the first new members welcomed in by the founders, served as Alpha Chapter's secretary for two years after she graduated. So she lived in town, and that happened a lot on these campuses where members, if they lived in town, they would still participate with the chapter, sometimes as full active members. At the same convention in 1881, this is the one that was held as a makeup when 
1880 had been postponed without the benefit of notification to the delegates. That's when they also voted to establish a Grand Council. As Tade mentioned, they wanted to have something that would make somebody responsible for all of it. Uh, they also established the Key Magazine and provinces were organized. So 1881 was a big year. And then nine years later, in 1890, they started to, con or not started to, they continued to establish the basics of the organization. That's where we got our flower, our colors, and the jewel was chosen. Also in 1890, they decided to call the first, um, or make plans to call the first panelitic meeting. So this is a precursor to today's NPC organization. So in 1891, uh, a group of women's fraternities met, and that was a decision of the 1890 convention. Then again, another, another 12 years later, um, in 1902, I think this is important, Minnie Royce Walker was um, asked to write a history by that convention. So 32 years after they were established, they were like, all right, we need to, we need to get our history on the record. So she spent that year and wrote a 67-page plur-bound booklet that appeared in 1903. Three years later, another big year, 1906, they took all the secret matter out of the Constitution and put it in a book of ritual. So our Constitution couldn't be shared openly. Um, we could never quite tell people what we were all about in a public manner because all of our secret stuff was in there. So that was big that they took that out. And thank goodness by 1930, that convention decided to add the names of Lou Stevenson and Sue Walker to the list of the founders. So pre-1930, we only had four founders. Can you imagine how confusing that would be since we're all used to six founders got together, walked across a bridge, which that's not even the whole story. <laughs> People have, have added on to that one. Thankfully, in 1930, since Lou and Sue were part of the group that walked into chapel, of course they should be founders. 1970 was a big year. Obviously, it was our centennial. It really re-energized our desire to know the history. They had a huge historical display, um, another historical pageant, and they, they really got the wheels turning to publish um, one of the most important history books in the organization, the 1975 and 1977 histories that were edited by Kay Graff and Diane Selby. Nothing had been written since Mae Westerman's 1932 history book. And then finally, I told you I'd make this quick, sorry, but uh, in 2016 and 2018, those, those two were really big years um, because they established the Canadian Task Force, which would help us continue to function as an international organization without ignoring the, the needs and issues that face our Canadian chapters as well as our United States chapters. And then the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force was created by virtue of the, night, the 2016 convention and was moved to committee in 2018. And then for you, Dr. Oz, 2018 was a big year. Alumna initiation was approved. And so we were able to welcome you and so many other amazing women as sisters in the organization Women like you who couldn't join because you attended a school that didn't have a Kappa chapter or you had, some, not you, some people had to leave school um, before they could finish their new member period. Um, a variety of reasons of why we have really amazing women who would make great Kappas, but so far did not have that opportunity. So I know today, just as a, a staff member and the foundation, that we do spend a great deal of time, a great deal of time and effort goes into arranging the programming for convention. That's such a big component today, and, and rightly so. What types of programming have been offered at convention today, but also in, in the past? Kind of when, when did that sort of originate, this emphasis on education? I think all along there has been some notion of education. Um, because it was an opportunity to teach a large group of people about the goings-on of the larger organization. You need to have an educated delegation if they're going to be making these big decisions like everything we just mentioned. These decisions are huge, and if we have members who don't know why the fraternity does what the fraternity does, <laughs> how can we have them make these decisions? So that's that's part of it, I think. Lots of chapter and alumna officer training. Then you see kind of this notion of a, a track of education for people who are attending without a particular role. So you might just be attending because you're an active alumna. You want to be reinvigorated, get to know some new Kappa sisters, but it's not like you're a chapter president. 
So they'll offer um, programs like personal education uh, that would include finance, um, physical education, leisure activities, how to be successful in retirement, how to find a good doctor and interview them in a new town, things like that that would be um, interesting and helpful to alumni members who are attending. And so then with the very specific tracks, they would talk about the finances of a chapter, how to be a good chapter treasurer, but then how the alumna advisor can work with that chapter treasurer. So um, really specific trainings, house boards, especially when the housing boom took place like in the 30s and 40s, and then especially after World War II, um, there was a lot of a lot of emphasis on housing and how those house words work and function. But then you'll see, I think more recently, probably in the last 20 to 30 years, lots of keynote speakers, keynote speakers during these programmed lunches and meals, keynote speakers on current affairs, people who are members and may have an expertise in a certain area, or non-members who may have a, a, an idea of expertise that would be interesting to the larger group. We had Diana Turk, the historian who wrote her dissertation on the history of women's fraternities. She came and spoke and talked about how the onus is on us as an organization to learn our history, know about our history, and share it with others so that we can continue to emphasize the positive aspects of our organizations, not just the negative stuff that makes it into the news. But then we have had speakers who are experts in the area of higher education, things that are specific to what an organization like Kappa would be interested in, um, the status of Greek letter organizations, different philanthropies, community service, Again, as we mentioned, during that 1938 and 1940 convention, they were talking an awful lot about the work that they wanted to do to support the war effort. So um, that would have been a lot of the programming at that time. So it really runs the gamut. I think we definitely look forward to, especially today, the who are the keynotes, keynote speakers going to be? Let's talk about awards. Awards, I think, are one of the best ways to help members kind of keep their eye on the prize. I know today we talk an awful lot about everyone doesn't deserve a trophy, <laughs> but it's a great way to give a set of goals to a group of people and help them work towards something, especially if they're going to be recognized in front of their peers. So, you know, in the earliest years, oftentimes the fraternity would look at an area that either seemed lacking or could use improvement among our, our chapters and alumni associations and designate an award to it. When you're worried about new members not understanding what it is to be a new member, if we welcome people into the organization but don't give them the tools to be successful as a member, that's an issue. So out comes the Chapter Pledge Training Award. So we no longer call them pledges. Uh, now it would be the new member award, the new member education award. Um, but that, that's a really important area of fraternity education that helps make sure that members know what's expected of them so that they can be successful members. Um, scholarship, we are always looking to maintain scholarship within the organization. That is one of the primary basis on which the fraternity was founded is scholarship. So chapters who want to compete for that scholarship award, um, that's, that's a really, really good goal for them. The Alumna Loyalty Award, that is typically given to members who have worked tirelessly behind the scenes. It has occasionally been given to fraternity presidents, but when it was initially established, we actually dug up some old correspondence to be reminded that it was never intended for a fraternity president. The cases in which the fraternity president received the award, it often was because they went on to do other roles. Serving as fraternity president is often seen as an honor in and of itself. And so this loyalty award is more often reserved for, again, that, that behind the scenes tireless volunteer who is genuinely doing everything in her power to move the organization forward. Gracious Living, that came about as chapters um, were building chapter houses and we were looking for ways to keep chapter members safe to make sure that, you know, Gracious Living sounds kind of silly and a little old fashioned. And I, I have heard chapter members snicker about it when they hear it announced, but it's a good way to remind chapters that they should be kind to whoever comes through their door. They should be respectful. They should, they should try to live in a way that's, that's gracious and ideal. 
And then the MACNOBO Awards for um, alumni associations, those are essentially checklists, ways to keep your association in top form and make sure you're, you're doing as much as you can as a group um, to be successful. So why not award it? Some of, the or some of the awards that we don't have anymore are the magazine awards. One of the big fundraisers we've had in previous years was the Rose McGill magazine sales. And so we had an agency just that sold magazines and a portion of the subscription prices went to this fundraiser for the Rose McGill, um, Rose McGill fund. So that magazine agency no longer exists and the, the award as well, no longer exists. I, so I did wonder, you did answer a question that I had in the back of my mind about looking through these photos of the, the various conventions and, and seeing the magazines for sale and kind of wondering, oh, what's that all about? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I should mention too, I guess I left out the, the top award, the, the greatest chapter award for a long time was called the Standards Cup. And so, meaning that the chapter has maintained such a high level of standards. And that's the, those are the pictures you'll see in the digital archives of someone holding a giant punch bowl with silver punch cups all around it. The Westerman Efficiency Award was, was along those lines. The Westerman Efficiency Award was all about, it was the Efficiency Cup, and it was chapters that had the, the greatest operations, so... Well, all of that convention business and voting and attending programs does make a person hungry, and we just have to take those moments to refuel. So let's talk about one of our favorite topics, which is food served at conventions and those convention menus. Those are the coolest things in the digital archives. Just seeing how the menus were laid out, um, some of those early menus that we looked at that were hand-painted. Um, one of the ones was from the St. Lawrence chapter, and each menu was different and had a piece of silk on the front and hand-painted. I think that was the 1888 convention. It just, it's so neat to see how they tried to impress the people who were coming to these conventions. So I love some of the examples that you that you pulled that they often include the palate cleansers in between. And then some, it seems like it's a buffet. Otherwise, your plate would have been so full, there would be no, <laughs> there would be no room to fit any of it on there. So like the 1906 menu, you pointed that out especially, I'm guessing, because you were most impressed by the baked jumbo whitefish with Saratoga chips. Which, what are Saratoga chips? Those are basically glorified potato chips. <laughs> I love it, I love it. Yeah, because it sounds so fancy, Saratoga. And there's a whole history behind why it's called Saratoga potatoes. And, and that's fascinating and you should Google it if you're interested. Mm -hmm. And then they, well, they started off with cream of almond with imperial sticks, but then you would have the boiled jumbo whitefish on Saratoga chips and then just cucumbers and brown bread. <laughs> Maybe because the whitefish and the Saratoga chips were so heavy? Uh, although, I mean, whitefish is, I think is pretty light. I don't know, maybe it was just like, let's just keep this simple. There's um, maybe a tendency, I think, if you're cooking something like that to think, oh, this is simple, I can't mess this up. But it's actually the simple things that need to be executed very, very well. And like this one had to be a buffet because then they have roast lamb with new potatoes and cauliflower au gratin and then olives and rolls. <laughs> and then cherry ice. There's the, uh, there's the palate cleanser. And then tomato salad with cheese crusts and almonds. And then nut ice cream with peach sauce, cake, and coffee. <laughs> Well, and I was watching another program that talked about um, how we have still carried through a lot of our food opinions and the order of courses based on some of the medieval practices and things that have been totally proven wrong now. But they would often think that you needed to eat your heaviest meal first because it was sometimes hard to digest not first, I should say, but that's like in the middle. So you would start with something light to sort of prep your digestive system. And then you would eat like a heavy meat pork or something like that. And then you would sort of cap it off with dairy. So that's why you'll see the cheese course or um, some sort of, they didn't have ice cream in the medieval period, but that idea to sort of seal off the top of your stomach so you could digest. 
So, <laughs> well, that dairy is going to coat your, well, probably help out with maybe, unless you're lactose intolerant. One thing I, I found um, just kept reappearing on the menus is, is baked Alaska. So that must have yes. been really popular. And I know it's, it's kind of a spectacle within itself. So it's not something that you would have every day. So it yeah, must be I, like the popularity of the flaming cheese at Greek restaurants. We can set this on fire and compare how it tastes at all because it was on fire. Fire, yeah, cherry, or cherry's jubilee. Some of the, there's a, a photo in the digital archives from 1968, the candlelight banquet, um, where the 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 wait staff is bringing in these cakes like on litters, and it just they look amazing. And I'm like, I love cake. I <laughs> I want to see that. Like, I wouldn't care what it was like. I just want some of that. Henceforth, cake must always be carried in on a litter. <laughs> or you could be carried in on a litter to eat the cake. Well, but I do, I do want to talk about modern conventions really quick because okay. the menus are dictated both by geography and cost. <laughs> I sat next to a food chair one year and we were having street tacos because we were in San Diego. And so I was, I was looking at it and I was sitting next to the food chair and she said, oh, I sure wish we could have avoided, or I sure wish we could have afforded guacamole. I said, what do you mean? And she said, all of this is a la carte. So they had to go through the menu and pick black beans versus refried beans, how much cheese, whether they're going to have beef, pork, whether they would have rice. Like, so to cut the cost down there, like, all right, get rid of the guacamole. Avocados are expensive. You can put salsa on it. And that'll be, <laughs> that'll be cheaper. Um, when we were in Kansas City, we had a lot of beef. And so we had, I think, one or two options of having beef. When we were in Houston, um, seafood was available, I think, because of the Gulf. Um, you can for sure see the food sort of correlating to the, to the region that we're in. Yeah, I noticed that in the, or I started to notice that in the, um, the 1926 conventions is that California and everything had some kind of related to California in some way, which I think is cool. Yeah. I just went to that Indiana convention because sugar cream pie. <laughs> All right. Well, we need to keep moving. So, so we're kind of winding down a little bit and just thinking about how we remember convention. I think one way we do that is through the, the souvenirs or the trinkets um, that we, we acquire while we're there. And so can you tell me a little bit about how, how um, the trinkets have evolved? Yeah, when you look back through, especially the jewelry collections, a lot of the stuff was likely acquired at convention because anytime there's a gathering of a group of people, if vendors are invited, they're gonna bring a sample of their wares. So jewelers, have always, since the earliest years, had something to do with convention. A lot of times they would sponsor the printing of a program or they would sponsor this or sponsor that. And so charms have been really popular probably in the last 30 to 40 years. Before that, it, it really did change with, with the times. So hat pins, we saw a lot of hat pins in the late 19th century, early 1900s. Again, it's not necessarily that they were given at every convention, but someone likely wore it at convention or they could have purchased it at convention. Um, we have a collection of what I initially thought were buttons because they're sewed onto a ribbon and they're from the conventions of like, I think it's 1904, 1906, 1908, um, but they're really the tops of hat pins. So when you look at it, you realize, oh, okay, it, it looks like it can fit on the top of a hat pin and you could change it based on style. And again, on a whole other episode, we can talk about how hat pins helped empower women with personal safety. Um, it was a way that they could defend themselves using, using their hat pins, as long as they didn't stab themselves in the head. But, um, we were, we were talking about in our notes, the Yellowstone, Yellowstone pin from 1934. It's a silver pin in the shape of a bear. There are so few of those that my hunch is that that was made available for sale and it wasn't like it was left at every place at the dinner table like they do today. So today, if you attend a convention, you'll get a little charm that's made by our jeweler, Herf Jones, that's designed specifically to represent uh, that convention. 
So um, souvenirs and samples from convention, uh, they, they run the gamut. We have that weird old doll that's in the shape of, it's either like a French gentleman or George Washington. Remember, we couldn't really tell from the 1916 convention. Um, there was a uh, wicker fan that was hand painted. That was from, I think, the 1962 convention. At the Homestead convention, there was a little cast iron figurines. They looked, um, they looked Amish, but it, it's, I think it's from that Homestead convention. Uh, those were a souvenir that people could, could purchase. So, you know, besides, I think the actual tangible items that you could buy, photographs were huge. Um, we have a lot of different scrapbooks that people kept and made based on the things that they collected while they were at convention. That's how we've come across a lot of early programs um, and advertisements and train tickets and luggage tags and things like that. People made their own souvenirs um, based on where they were traveling and what they were picking up along the way. And then of course, memories, the souvenirs that you can't buy and you can't necessarily put into a box, the songs that you sang, the, the people that you met. And that was another way to collect souvenirs. You could collect the signatures of people that you met and then important people who were in leadership. So we've seen history books like when the 1932 history book came out, a lot of the early copies have the signatures of presidents in the front, but then sometimes it also has the signatures of maybe your roommate, people that you met um, while you were at convention that you wanted to remember. Just lots of different types of souvenirs. Speaking of memories, I think that's this is a great segue into I think what'll be our final segment of this podcast. I would be remiss um, as a historian, if we didn't talk about um, how convention has paid tribute to Kappa's heritage and how that how that has been displayed over the years. So I'd like to ask you, as the person who's really in charge of now setting up Kappa's historical displays um, and, and historical artifacts at convention, what is your favorite part of the exhibit that is at convention? What, what ones would you like to add? What, which ones have been popular with attendees? Well, I should start that Kappa has had some presentation of heritage from the very beginning. At those first conventions, I think it was the convention of 1876, they asked Minnie Stewart, who was still living and she um, was still active with the fraternity, they asked her to do some research, which she tried to cover those first 12 years of the fraternity. They asked her to present it at the 1882 convention. So Minnie presented a historical presentation, kind of a speech of sorts, but it was missing a lot of those early details. Um, she put together as much as she could, but even by 1882, they didn't know the full story. <laughs> because people couldn't remember those early documents were lost. So we've always had an emphasis on our history, which I love. Today, I'm always proud of the fact that Kappa is one of the few groups that really puts an emphasis on the display that we take to convention. I love that now we have an opportunity to share our heritage um, virtually. I'm heartbroken that our convention for the sesquicentennial has been canceled, but we can now share it with anyone who has an internet connection and wants to wants to dial in and learn a little bit more about the heritage of the fraternity. When I interned in 2000, they were getting ready to debut the Pathways Education Program system. And so the theme of that convention was also something about pathways. So we took a display of shoes. We had a ton of different shoes and we could represent almost every decade from the founding of the fraternity. And that so far seems to be one of the most popular displays that had been put together because the shoes are so representative of those time periods and so different and they just they seem to speak to women so people could vote what their favorite shoe was and what the display was like. Whenever we take the dresses of our uh, VIP members. People love that. And I feel strongly about presenting them in the context of what the women were doing, not just a, isn't this a pretty dress? I really want people to know what that woman did while she was wearing that dress or what kind of influence she had at that time. I love our tradition of leadership exhibit, the one that was written by Edith Mayo, our former museums committee member and our, our uh, Kappa sister who's a retired curator from the Smithsonian. She really puts Kappa's history in the context of women's history, helps show us why organizations like ours were so important. The silver, uh, we take a lot of silver to display and people love that. 
Um, I think just the whole notion of, of glittery silver and then the jewelry that's usually displayed next to it is popular. I'd have to say though, my absolute favorite would be any of the illuminated ritual books that we take or the Delta Red book. Uh, the Delta Red book has our earliest example of ritual as it was written. And then those illuminated ritual books are just gorgeous. They're on sheepskin vellum. They usually have a leather cover. They're just so beautiful and they have such uh, beautiful ceremonies and, and words in them that that's, that's super meaningful to me. So I love being able to share our history um, with our members at convention. Before we conclude, is there anything else that you would like to share with all of our listeners about convention? Oh my gosh, there's so much. Uh, some of the questions you had asked earlier were, what's the oldest convention tradition? And I would say that the two oldest convention traditions would be first the call to convention, the whole notion of saying, hey, you guys, let's get together and making sure everyone hears about it. But then also having um, a wrap up speech by whoever is in charge. That is a great way to reflect on what has happened and how to set goals for the future. So we've always had some sort of remarks by the outgoing leader and the incoming leader. And I think that's, that's really important because it gives voice to the, the purposes behind the fraternity. Like I said, I love convention. Um, I was disappointed that 2020 was canceled, but I was also a proponent of it. I think this is a, this is a historical year in so many ways for our own anniversary for this terrible pandemic that we're navigating through um, to everything that's going on in the world. I like that we can come together virtually without putting people in danger. And I like that it'll save money. Conventions are expensive. And if we're not being as productive as possible with a convention, um, I would never want to see us waste money on, on just getting together and having a fun party. Well, thank you for coming on Voyage of Discovery. We've had a great discussion. I've enjoyed listening to all of your insights and talking about the different things we find on the digital archives. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Join me next month when we'll hear from another guest speaker. I'm Mary Osborne for Voyage of Discovery. Voyage of Discovery is recorded at the Stewart House, an educational outreach program of the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit the Foundation's page on kappa.org. Like us on Facebook and follow Stuart House 1865 on Instagram. Thanks for listening.